1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're, we're going to read it, just uh, read it together now. Um, it is, I'm go- we're going to do the whole chapter because there was really no way to break this up. Uh, so we'll try to go through as quickly as possible, but uh, we need to read it so that we have the whole context in our minds as we study it together. So um, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we'll read together and then we'll ask for the Lord's help in proclaiming and receiving it. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working or working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruits? Or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? Do you say do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written, In the law of Moses you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads the grain, for it, it is the ox pardon me, is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others, shall, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have not made use of of these rights, of any of these rights, for I am writing these things to secure, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have someone, anyone, deprive me of the ground of boasting, of my boasting. For I preached the gospel that gives me no ground for boast. Sorry, I'm messing up here. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? that in preaching the gospel, that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of it, use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, not though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, again for um, these letters that Paul writes so candidly to the Corinthian church. And we can look in 
to this very real church with very real problems. And though they differ slightly from the specific problems we have today, that there is so much wisdom to be gleaned from the principles laid down here by the Apostle Paul. I thank you, Lord, that as he laid down these principles, he had the mind of Christ, and we are to regard them as Scripture, as authoritative. And, Lord, as we look at Paul's continuing defense for surrendering rights, which started with that of surrendering, surrendering the, the right uh, to eat meat offered to idols, um, Lord, that we would each examine our own hearts and examine the things that we may be doing or the things we may not be doing that would in some way stand in the way of the gospel. And Father, I pray that we might adopt an attitude similar to that of the Apostle Paul, who was concerned not so much with, with insisting on his rights, but is far more concerned with giving the gospel away freely as the greatest reward of all. So please open our eyes. Give us understanding through your spirit. Lord, if there is need, you would also bring conviction of sin through your spirit and, and uh, repentance and faith and regeneration. And Lord, that you would also give freedom as I speak your word. And I pray, Lord, that there wouldn't be a second that I would be thinking that it is in any way dependent upon me for you to speak. So speak to us, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, last week, we covered the entire, entirety of chapter 8. And the main issue in chapter 8, first century issue, was should we eat meat offered to idols or not? And the Apostle Paul says, well, there's nothing in Scripture to, or, or there's nothing to forbid. You have the right to do that. But for the sake of one who has past associations with idols and is thinking that you're really eating meat that was offered to real entities, you should respect that and therefore not eat because you would cause him or her to sin against their own conscience. So that was the argument that was presented in chapter 8, and really chapters 9 and 10 can continue with examples and illustrations to build up that same argument around that issue of meat offered to idols. However, in, this, in these three chapters, Paul addresses Christian liberty, what we are free to do as Christians, and even within our freedom, how we ought to govern our choices so that we don't offend believers such as in chapter 8, and in this chapter, so that we don't restrict the gospel and make, make it more difficult for people to receive the gospel. And then later on in chapter 10, again, he centers that argument around how, how that would affect the preaching of the gospel um, and how, how the world would look look at us if we do things that in the world's eyes are pagan or idolatrous. Well, today we're going to look at, uh, or the title that I've given for the message is called Right Thinking About Rights. Now the Apostle Paul has already addressed rights in one specific context, and that was, I think it was in chapter 7, uh, conjugal rights. You know, get, let the wife give to her husband his conjugal rights, and let the husband give to his wife her conjugal rights. In other words, husbands and wives within a marriage, they, ex they have reason to expect, or th there are reasonable expectations within a marriage that, th that they're, it's talking about sexual needs would be met. And Paul says, let the husband give, and let the wife give. What he does not say is, let the husband insist upon his rights, and let the wife insist upon her rights. There is a, the emphasis is on giving. The emphasis is on the other. And so we find in this passage, where we're again dealing with rights in a, in a different context, in this passage, the emphasis is on the other, on giving the, uh, the person who has reason to be offense, taking away that offense, so that you can give something amazing to them. And that is the gospel. And that you can give that without charge. 
that you can give that without an expectation that there has to be this change in behavior or that change in behavior or this obligation or that obligation or that you have to that you you owe the person who is giving you spiritual instruction and you have to uh, somehow uh, give them lots of money or attention or anything else uh, the whole thing is about the gospel being a gift so let's dive in and let's look at this right thinking about rights from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we will do this under three main headings. First is Paul's rights as an apostle. Uh, Paul is an apostle and a good emphasis all the way through First and Second Corinthians. He is defending his apostleship. But we addressed that in a previous message entitled, What is an Apostle? But in this section, these first few verses here, the first 11 verses... He lays out his rights as an apostle. Then, after saying, this, these are all my rights, he says, this is why I'm laying down my rights. So he gives reasons for surrendering his rights. Now we, as, as Canadians, we have our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and we have many things that uh, we, we believe we are entitled to as citizens of Canada and even as human beings. The United States is the same way. Most democratic countries, rights are a big deal. And this is not to minimize rights, but Paul is setting an example here of not clinging to those rights because there may be circumstances where laying down those rights would be more beneficial to the body of Christ. And... We are to follow his example in willingly doing that. And then we will look finally at Paul's race for an imperishable reward. Once again, the Apostle Paul turns the emphasis to eternity. When we get anxious about things in this life, we've looked at in, I think, chapter 8 or the end of 7. When we get anxious about things of this life, we need to get an eternal perspective. We need to understand that this time that we live in is compressed compared to the broad expanse, the never-ending expanse of eternity and life with the Lord. So we need to get that kind of perspective. Again, he is offering us here as he pursues this imperishable reward. So we need to be thinking in terms of eternity, not just in, in terms of right now. So let's begin at verse 1. And we have the apostles' rights as he lists them here. And the first is his right to consideration as an apostle. Apostle Paul is an apostle. He is added on as one untimely born in his own words so that there are these men who are entrusted with laying down the foundation of the gospel upon which uh, other teachers will come and build and everything that is done in the name of Christ and for his glory will last. Everything else will be destroyed. So he is now saying that he's an apostle. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Of course, these are all rhetorical questions. Am I not free? Of course he's free. And in this context, we've just read, looked at chapter 8, he's free to eat meat offered to idols if he wants because that is, has been very clearly revealed to the apostles that there is nothing in itself wrong with that. But he says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? An apostle is a sent one, one sent directly by Jesus Christ who had seen him in the flesh. And then that's his next point. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? When he says Jesus our Lord, it isn't uh, just sort of a generic reference to, uh, to having, having seen Jesus in, in, as the resurrected Christ, but seeing Jesus as the Lord who gave instruction for the building of his church. He has seen Jesus our Lord. All of these qualify him to be an apostle. Are you not, Corinthians, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So even if other people don't recognize me as an apostle, I came to Corinth, I planted the seed of the gospel, Apollos watered, the Lord made it grow, and because I labored in building, laying this foundation, he talks about that earlier in 1 Corinthians, because I labored on this, and he says, you are the seal of my apostle. You, you exist as a church because of my apostleship. So 
in saying all of this, he's really saying, I'm an apostle, I have a right to consideration as an apostle. He's saying, I have a right to importance, I have a right to respect. I have all of these things, especially from you. Because in another way, he says, I'm, I was your, I'm your father in the faith. So that's the first right that Paul has. Now, he doesn't specifically say that it's a right, but in defense of his apostleship, he's saying, I'm speaking as an apostle. So I have this right to be considered as such. Second, he says he has a right to consume. And again, we go back to the previous chapter to get the context of this. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have, do we apostles not have the right to eat and drink? Um, Of course, he's going to eat and drink for physical sustenance, but there would have been things that would have been forbidden for them to eat and drink. And he's saying... I have the right to eat and drink. There are people who are going to criticize me for what I just said in the previous chapter, what I just said to the Corinthian church, that it is okay to eat meat, but I am choosing not to eat meat. There are going to be people who judge him on both sides of that. But he's saying, I have freedom. I have freedom to eat and drink. I have freedom... I'm not, I'm not bound by all of these restrict dietary restrictions. So I have a right to enjoy the fruits of God's creation, to eat into, with liberty. So that's another right that he and all the apostles have. It is also a right that every believer has. But, as we've seen in the previous chapter, sometimes those rights need to put, be put aside for various reasons. All right, his third right that he has here is a right to companionship. This is a big one. We've, Paul has already talked a lot about marriage and how it is good for a person to remain single, but it is certainly not a sin to be married. And that within uh, a single person's life, there needs to be special grace so that he's not overcome or she's not overcome by the temptations of the world and so on. But Paul knows as a man that having a believing wife along with him in some ways would greatly assist his comfort in ministry, would greatly benefit him, and yet be, for various reasons, for the concerns of the rigor of his, his travel schedule and so on, he doesn't take, even though other apostles do, and he's not saying that's bad. Peter has a wife. The brothers of Jesus have wives. The other apostles have wives. So Paul is not saying, I'm better than you. He's saying, look, I've got a reason for depriving myself of these rights, and I'm about to share it with you. All right, he has another right, and this consumes a a good part of our text, and that is the right to compensation. And he goes on to quite a long case here to show how people who serve the Lord Um, diligently on kind of a full-time, full-emphasis basis, they have a right to expect that people would compensate them financially for their work. So let's read this. It says, Or is it only Barnabas and I that have no right to refrain from working for a living? He's comparing them to the other apostles. Are, are, Are we the exception? Do we have no right to refrain? Really, he's saying we do have a right to do that. We don't have to be working. We could be asking you to help us. It says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? The answer to everybody is, every question is nobody, nobody, nobody. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen the Lord is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? Now, I just have to make a little comment here. You can find that, that instruction in Deuteronomy chapter 25, and there's basically no context given to it. To the Israelites, it, it meant literally don't muzzle your ox when he's treading the grain. And they would think, well, you need to be kind to your animal, right? You need to make sure that your animal is treated properly as one of God's creatures. Well... Paul, as an apostle, having insight into the scriptures, says, was it for the oxen 
No, that, that wasn't the primary meaning at all. It says it's, it's applied to the New Testament church. It is written for our sake. He says, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If that oxen is going to be working and treading out the grain, uh, he also needs to be eating some of the grain that he's treading out. He's, he's worthy of that. And so he's making the case that one who labors in the word is worthy to share in the crop. So he says, if we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much of us, too much, if we reap material things from you? If others share in this rightful claim on you, do we not, do not we even more? So he's building up a case that says, as an apostle, I have a right to all of these things. And these are very powerful arguments. It'd be very difficult to argue with any of these things. But now he goes and he's going to explain why he's going to surrender these rights. So let's look next at our second major point, which is Paul's reasons for surrendering his rights. First one is found in verse 12, I guess. Yeah. Second part of verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Specifically, he's talking about the right to demand uh, financial remuneration or compensation from the congregation. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus of, of Christ. So my point comes from that sentence. Insisting on his rights would be an obstacle to the gospel. In that particular context, in that particular church, he chose to make tents with Priscilla and Aquila rather than depend upon the people that he was, where he was planting the church. He had his reasons for that. And he goes on to explain more reasons why he could take money for what he's doing. He says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have, not, I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure such provision. So his basic reasoning in that point is, if I insist on these things, I will erect an obstacle to the gospel. If you think in our own 21st century context in the, 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 the church in a very broad sense, you can see that some people are all in for these evangelists that have to have their own private jet and have to have the fancy suits. And uh, they believe that financial success is, is an indication that God is blessing and they, they, they literally beg and plead and cajole and trick people into giving them thousands and thousands, millions and millions of dollars. And they don't, they're indiscriminate. They don't care if the people have nothing, if they're giving the, the last mite like the widow did. And uh, when Jesus addresses that, he is not placing the emphasis on the, the last mite and say that wid widow did such a, a wonderful thing. It's more in the context of rebuke of the Pharisees or of the people who were willing to take her very sustenance from her. So even today we can see that when, you, when the financial benefit of a, of a religious leader, when that is, becomes the main thing and becomes the main thrust and the main emphasis and they're really driven out of greed, that is a, a stumbling block to the gospel. It's a serious stumbling block. I, I can see those guys on, on TBN or whatever, they give people every reason to turn off the, the television set, even though perhaps, I, I, I say optimistically, the gospel message might be there. But it gives them every reason to turn them off and to create an obstacle. So you can see... We, it's not hard to see how people could begin to think of the apostles as, as freeloaders or as, people, as having a sense of entitlement or as, as you know, 
trying to get out of the, the physical day-to-day -day labor that everybody else had to do. So you can see how that certainly would be an obstacle. So that's the first reason. Insisting on his rights would be an obstacle to the gospel. Continuing now in the second part of verse 15, we see the necessity of preaching the gospel is greater to Paul than any right. And the key word there is necessity. The gospel much must be preached. And in Paul's mind, he must preach the gospel. There is no option. He is, he, his identity is that he is an apostle. He is a sent one. And he is sent for the purpose of preaching the gospel. And in, in some sense, every Christian has that purpose. Uh, some may pro proclaim it more broadly and with more of a specific emphasis, but between our lives and our words, we all proclaim the gospel. So the text says here, it, I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. And I'll just keep that um, in, in the back of your mind for a bit. We, we'll, we'll talk about the ground for boasting later. But he says, for if I preach the gospel... That gives me no ground for boasting. I can't come to you and boast because I preach the gospel. Why? For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. It's just what I do. I can't take any credit for that, but listen, I am, I am bound by the Lord himself to carry out his will in calling me as an apostle and giving me this very important job to do of proclaiming the gospel. Now, some, sometimes people ask me about my call to preach. And I, uh, the simplest answer I can give is, woe unto me if I do not preach the gospel. There's nothing else. I mean, there, I, I'm called to do this. This is it. So, Let's just lay aside rights for a minute. Let's lay aside boasting for a minute. Let's get to the basic level. Paul's purpose is to preach the gospel. And he has, this is why he is on the earth. And we're, we are here, following the example and the teachings of the apostles. We are here to proclaim in whatever means that the Lord gives us to proclaim that same gospel. It's not an option. For us, and it's more important than any of our rights. We do, we don't have a right. We don't have a right not to preach the gospel. Okay. Let's go to the third reason that Paul gives here for surrendering his rights, and that is that the reward for preaching the gospel is in giving it as a gift. Do you understand what it means that giving a gift, giving a gift? Just think of giving a gift of someone to someone you love. Is the reward for that gift when Granny reaches into her purse and pulls out a bunch of toonies and pays you for the gift? Gives you... Don't... If someone does that when you give them a gift, doesn't it take away the reward of giving that gift away freely? So he says here, for I do this, if I do this of my own will... I have a reward. In other words, if I willingly preach the gospel, there is a legitimate reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with the stewardship. So no matter what, I've got to preach the gospel. There is a reward in proclaiming the gospel. Then he says, what then is my reward? And you might be thinking, well, obviously it must be, uh, you know, an extra crown or two in heaven or, you know, Maybe salvation itself. By the way, this is not about salvation. It's about reward. Different thing. It says, here's the reward. That in preaching, I may, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make use of my full right in the gospel. His reward is giving the gospel away freely and not putting any, any kind of obligation to himself on people. You know, the Apostle Paul, he is the one who uses in his own writings the phrase gospel of grace. 
were named Gospel of Grace Fellowship. Paul understood the gospel of grace. He understood that not because of who he was as a Pharisee who kept the law, who persecuted the church, who, uh, who, who prayed on the street corners and uh, who had all this honor and, and kept the law as well as any Pharisee could, in spite of all of that, God saved him. And God saved one who describes himself as the chiefest, the most the most extreme of all sinners, and that God saved him. He, he gave him a new life. He gave him a new heart. And overwhelmingly, the emphasis in the apostles' teachings about the gospel is the word grace. We could call it God's riches at Christ's expense. We could call it unmerited favor. And so in his whole proclamation of the gospel, Paul is modeling Grace, I am giving freely to you what you don't deserve because I received freely what I did not deserve. And Paul is not saying everyone has to do it exactly this way. But in my conscience, as one who is called to preach the gospel, as one who is under woe if he does not preach the gospel, my reward is is that I can present the gospel and have other people receive it freely and see what God does in them. And what does God do when people receive the gospel? He makes them into new people. He makes them into incorruptible people who will be raised again incorruptibly and will live in the presence of Christ for all eternity reigning with him, there is an eternal investment and there are eternal rewards for what he does in this temporal body, sowing the seed of the gospel. There is eternal fruit from this. So the reward is actually in giving the gift away freely. And by the way, when he gives that gift away freely, it's not that say, oh, I worked really hard for this and I labored and I saved and I scrimped and here are the fruits of my labors. He's not giving away something he's worked for at all. He is giving a gift that was given to him which brought him such joy and brought him eternal life and he's saying, what I have received, I give freely to you and this is his whole motivation in life. Exciting to be able to live that way, wouldn't it? Sometimes we get it mixed up with other issues. All right, number four, fourth reason for surrendering his rights is that the surrender of his rights allows Paul to come to people as a servant and without offense. Servants do not come expecting something. Servants do not come um, in such a way that people are looking and saying, well, what's your real motive here? I mean, do you question the motive of uh, the guy who pumps your gas at the, at the gas station? They're just doing their job, and there's, there's something very unintimidating about a servant. They're there to help you. So he says here, to show that his, uh, this, uh, this reason that he can surrender his rights, for though I am free from all, I'm an apostle after all, I have made myself a servant to all. Can you think of someone else who was free from all, who made himself a servant of all? Can you think of someone who did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he took upon himself the form of a servant? And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death of the cross. See, he's really just modeling the example of Christ here. So, I am free from all. I have rights. I have every right. I am, I am adopted into the family of God. I am seated with Christ in heavenly places. I have those eternal riches that Ephesians talks about. But I've made myself a servant to all that I might, here's the key, that I might win more of them. Are you drawn to arrogant people? 
Are you drawn to people who, who you can just sense that they feel entitled to, for you to bow before them or to offer them something or to, or to defer to them? Paul says, I'm going to win a lot more people by becoming their servant than I will by becoming their Lord. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. Now, Paul was a Jew, but he was also someone who was lifted up out of the impossibility of keeping that law and brought into the new law of Christ, which gives liberty. But when I'm among the Jews, I'm going to observe the things that, are, that the Jews hold in reverence so that I can bring the gospel in a way that will not offend them. The gospel might offend them, okay? The gospel to some is the fragrance of life and to the others it is a stench of death. We can't help what the gospel does. It's, and there is no option to preach it in any other way than just to lay the truth out there. But listen, we ourselves, by our conduct and our behavior and our disrespect of the people where we bring the gospel, we can certainly ourselves become an offense and we have no biblical um, permission to be offensive in how we bring the gospel. Uh, Kevin, Kevin St. John used a word that I think applies very well to evangelism. We need to be winsome. And if you think of the Apostle Paul, why? this is a bit of a pun, but he behaves in this way and he alters his his behavior among certain groups so that he can win some, right? You want to be winsome. But he really does. He wants to win more. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. He knows that the law is fulfilled in Christ. He knows that he does not have to keep the commandments and that in, or in order to in order to be accepted. He knows that he keeps those commandments because he is accepted, that God has brought him up out of the land of Egypt, as it were, to bring, a, bring him into this new land, and God did it all. And so he's not, he's not keeping that in the sense that the Jews did, but he is doing this as a way to make his own life palatable to the people that he is reaching. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So to Gentiles, there are probably things about Jewish life and culture, and even about Paul's own preferences, that would have been considered odd, and maybe even repulsive to Gentiles. doesn't mean that Paul would ever sin, but he would try his best to speak to them in the way that they understood. Now Paul, in his defense of preaching the gospel, he has said to the Jews, it's a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, it's foolishness. What he's saying is here, I'm not going to add the stumbling block of my life as a second stumbling block to the Jews, and I'm not going to add, say, that the, the Jewish emphasis was on signs and wonders and so on, I'm not going to act all, all, all Jewishy and weird if they respect the if they respect the language of discourse more. And you see this in Paul's letters, even though he do, he's not saying the gospel is a matter of logic. In these letters he writes to Gentiles, he uses a lot of logic. He appeals to them in the way that they think, in the discourse that they understand, but. He does not alter the message, and that's the key. The message is never altered, and the life is always lived in a way consistent with the message that is proclaimed. Another way of saying that is the life of the apostle adorns the gospel. It makes the gospel more beautiful. The way that you live and the way that you interact with love in your immediate situation adorns the gospel. It makes the gospel more beautiful. It makes Jesus more beautiful because they can literally see the sacrificial nature of Jesus in you. 
in some ways we all live out the incarnation, and I don't mean that in a blasphemous way, but Jesus sacrificed his rights to be made a servant and to come and live in, in our midst and, and live, pitch his tent, that's to dwell, it literally means to pitch his tent or to tabernacle among us. We're tabernacling and sojourning among people who are not citizens of heaven, and we are. But we're also ambassadors for that kingdom. So we, we just need to, um, to interact in a way that glorifies the Lord. Okay, so that's point number four. The surrender of the rights allows Paul to come alongside people as servant and without offense. Now, you might be saying, well, okay, so let's read carefully, let's be exegetical. Let's say, who is, who is he talking about? Well, he's talking about himself so far. Nowhere has he yet given us any kind of uh, mandate that we need to do the same thing. Well, hang on, because it's coming. But first, let's finish number five. Now, the fifth reason for Paul surrendering his rights. Sharing, the gospel, sharing in the gospel's blessings makes sacrificing his rights worthwhile. Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them, who are them? The people who receive the gospel in its blessings. The gospel is too good not to share and to rejoice as a sinner saved by grace with sinners saved by grace. It makes every surrender of rights worthwhile. You see in the, uh, the annals of history of missions, different people who have surrendered their rights to comfort, to Christian fellowship, even to be able to talk regularly with Christian brethren outside of a very small circle. You've seen them go into all the corners of the world. Um, Hudson Taylor adopted the dress of, of the Chinese in order to bring the gospel to them. And, you know, the sacrifice of communing, communicating only in a language that is not your own. Um, spending years of your life, many missionaries sacrificing their bodies to diseases that they had no way to combat. Many missionary women, wives, having children that died with no medical care available to them. And uh, the, the good missionaries are ones that actually did everything they could not to be offensive to the people that they joined, but at the same time being godly. Sometimes it didn't work so well, like when they went into India and they would set up a, sort of a little England in the middle of India, and they would bring, bring people into the compound and they would teach them how to be more British because they couldn't separate their Britishness from their Christianity. And, I mean, some people were truly saved through a ministry like that, but what happened over time was a sense of embitterment. And long-term, the, the, the witness of the church would have been served much better had the people come with a more humble attitude. And, by the way, I think these people who went with the gospel in that way, they were acting out their conscience perfectly. They were... It was how they understood the gospel to be proclaimed. They did not compromise the message. But what I'm saying is a different method may have produced better, better results. That's why people examine missions and they examine methods in missions to make sure that we're, uh, we're doing this in a way that is biblical. All right. So sharing in the gospel's blessings makes sacrificing his rights worthwhile. So thus far... We've been talking about the Apostle Paul. Well, what about us? Well, Paul gives an example here at the last. And he puts it all into perspective. He said, and the, my point here, the third major point, is uh, we've, we've already looked at Paul's rights as an apostle. We've looked at his reasons for surrendering his rights. Now we're going to look at Paul's race for an imperishable reward. And the, the point under this is that he ex exercises discipline like an athlete seeking an imperishable reward. So let's just read this. 
Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. We've all got probably, anybody who watched the Olympics, have images of these athletes, these muscled, um, toned, fit people who have trained incessantly for four years just to reach the place where they have the right to compete. And then there's only one that stands on that gold medal pet, uh, podium. Now, Paul is not saying here that uh, there's only one person who's going to get into heaven. Okay, <laughs> This isn't the context of salvation. And he is also not saying there's only one person who will, will receive reward. What he's saying is strive, go for the gold, no matter what. Strive as people who want that prize, who want to receive that reward. And the reward begins here on earth with a temporal blessing of, of seeing the, the change of life wrought in people who receive the gospel. But it continues into eternity. Jesus talks about using the mammon of unrighteousness to bring people into everlasting dwellings. Using the, the, the means that are at our disposal in this world for eternal purposes and to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. So he says, so run that you may obtain it. So all of this that Paul is saying about himself, he says, I, I am giving you an example as one who trains and prepares and deprives himself as an athlete who doesn't eat certain foods, who, who doesn't receive uh, the, the comforts, who, who uh, doesn't even take along a wife on, on his uh, ministry, missionary journeys. I am doing all of these things as an example to you. And I want you to run as I am running to receive the prize. The, the only prize that the Apostle Paul talks about is that high calling of the Lord Jesus Christ, being called toward him in the gospel. And he wants people to enter into that. He says, they do not receive a perishable wreath. Or pardon me, they do it to receive a perishable wreath. There are, there are certain limited benefits to being an athlete. You get the accolades, you get to stand on the podium. We're, we're going for something here that lasts forever. We're, we're talking about real treasure in heaven. We're talking about real reward. We, we read of the elders in the book of Revelation, the 24 elders, and they have bowls that, that contain the prayer or it contain incense, which is the prayers of the saints. And they also have crowns. It's really interesting that they take those crowns and what do they do? They say, well, I'm so thankful for this crown. I, I worked hard for this crown. No, they take the crown and they, they throw them down at the feet, <laughs> at the feet of the throne, at the feet of Jesus. So if those are soul winners' crowns, there's a great reward in receiving those crowns, but ultimately the reward goes to Jesus. I mean, he is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. He is our all in all. So, but Paul says, run to obtain the prize. The prize is not a perishable wreath, something that benefits you in the here and now. The prize is eternal. It's not eternal life. That has already been won for you in Christ. But it's these enduring lives that come to Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. Any sacrifice is worth one of those lives. A lifetime of sacrifice, having gained not even one of those lives, is still worthy of the one who died for you. And by the way, in your witness, you have no idea how God uses your testimony in ways that uh, 
are un, un, inaccessible to you. It might be years, decades after you might hear of someone who's come to the Lord, someone that you once witnessed to, or that you once gave a tract to, or something like that, and you don't know what part you played in that, but the Lord does. If you were faithful in, in uh, sharing the gospel, and you were doing that, not for any of these rights, but just because Jesus died for you, he gave you a new life, you want to share this freely. So he says, I do not run aimlessly. In other words, I have a point. I saw a Monty Python sketch on, on YouTube, and it was uh, the 100-meter race for directionally challenged people. And everybody was at the starting line, and the, the starter, mark, it's set, boom. And they all go off in all different directions. They're running aimlessly. You know, sometimes as Christians, we, we run aimlessly because we forget where the goal is. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about the goal. It says, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And what do we do as we're running that race, looking to Jesus? We throw off, we throw off the things that entangle us. I think we throw off offenses to the gospel. We also throw off the sin that so easily entangles us. We, we throw off the weights, we throw off the sin, and we run with perseverance the race that is set before us. And, of course, the goal is Jesus is waiting there. Jesus has finished that race. He has walked in our shoes. He, is, he has accomplished the righteousness, the righteous pass, or active obedience that we could never accomplish in our lives. He has accomplished the forgiveness of sins that we could never accomplish. And, and all we've got to do is walk in Him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So we don't run aimlessly. There's a real point to what we're doing. And the point is Jesus. The point is giving all glory to him. The the point is peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I do not box as one beating the air. I don't shadow box. Can you think of anything more pointless than shadow boxing? You're never going to beat your opponent, right? It's, it's just kind of a waste of energy. But he says, I, I'm, I'm fighting a real fight here. In another, in another place, Paul says, I have finished the course. I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. So it's a real fight. But I discipline my body. Now, this is, this is kind of funny, and, and I can't read Greek. One day I will. I can only read commentaries on Greek. But listen, it says... I do not give my body a black eye. It's literally what it means in Greek. I don't, I don't, or pardon me, no, it actually says, I give my body a black eye. In other words, I fight with myself. Uh, some people have, some people have taken this very literally, like Martin Luther used to actually beat himself because of the sin. He tried to, he thought buffet his, his body meant to buffet his body, to, to tr- try to drive the sin out. Now, Paul is saying, I treat my body harshly if necessary. I deprive my body of things. If, if I'm not putting sleep above the necessity of preaching the gospel. I'm not putting eating above the necessity of preaching the gospel. I'm not putting marriage and, and um, domestic happiness. I'm, I'm treating myself harshly, not out of some sort of weird asceticism, it says there's merit in me treating my body harshly, but because of the sake of what I'm doing, these things are necessary. I'm in training, I'm in competition, I'm in combat. And I'm willing to surrender those things. Just finishing here, I d- discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, of course, again, Paul is not talking about, not saying... If, I don't, if I'm not an adequate preacher and if I don't deprive myself of all those things, I might not get to heaven. That's not what he's saying. But he is providing an example of life to the Christians and saying things like, whatever you see in me, do. He says, I don't want to disqualify myself. I don't want, I don't want people to see me 
And because of me, the integrity of the gospel is brought into question. I don't want people to write me off as a messenger of the gospel because of the way that I've been negligent in, in how I have proclaimed it and how I have placed my rights before anything else. You could maybe use the analogy of that of the athletes that have to return their medals because they've been doping with steroids. Or the, uh, that swimmer that brought disgrace to the United States by lying about his encounter with security guards. You can bring dishonor and shame upon not only your country but your Lord when you, uh, when you don't uphold his name and his righteousness and his humility in how you approach others with the gospel. So uh, Paul is saying this at all, that exercise, he exercises discipline like an athlete, and he's seeking this imperishable reward. And the takeaway from us is we are also, we are also to run as those who might to obtain that imperishable reward. Again, as so often, the emphasis is on eternal things. Not temporal things, eternal things. And again, throughout this whole section in 1 Corinthians, the emphasis is not on ourselves, but on others. Just to close, I'll give a a little illustration. Rhonda and I, we, together, we were down in Mexico, in Tijuana, several times, doing a quote-unquote missions trip, which really wasn't a missions trip. It was taking some high school kids down there and giving them and exposure to the to the culture but we did with those with those kids we stayed with missionaries and these were true blue missionaries uh, with the Christian Missionary Alliance and David Wintemute they now live in Regina but he he uh, kind of gave us direction and gave, showed us the rope as ropes as a group and he would tell us First off, the first day he used to give us an orientation, one thing he says is, when you go to the beach, don't, don't wear skimpy bathing suits. Cover yourselves as much as possible. And of course, the Canadian kids are saying, what? We're down here, it's hot, it's warm, uh, it's cold up in Canada, we're here, we want to take advantage of this. Why should we surrender that right to dress that way? And he says, you know, Mexican people, they've got a different standard of, of modesty. And they're, they're not all about showing off. And when you come, well, he said this, I don't know how to test this, but he says, when you come as, as white people and you show off as much of your body as possible, they think that they're flaunting that you're better than them. I mean, that's just sort of how some people think it, it, and because they see you know, America, Canada as the world standards of wealth and it's kind of they, they want to be there, they want to be part of that. So, and of course, these guys, oh, they threw a fuss about that and they did everything possible to get out of uh, complying with that. And Rhonda, she had this great solution. She, she brought this old granny swimsuit and she says, if anybody is wearing something too skimpy, they have to, they're going to have to wear this instead. Um, anyway, I'm getting to a point here. Uh, the last thing this missionary would tell us in his orientation was, listen, we need to be hard on ourselves and easy on others. That's a simple statement, but apply that to your life for a second. To be hard on yourselves and easy on others, to put others' interests before yourselves, to give to make things easier for them, even if it means making it harder for yourself. It doesn't apply universally, but just this idea of placing the interests of others before ourselves in every respect within the body of Christ and in the context of preaching the gospel. It really means surrendering our own rights. I hope this is uh, helpful to you. Some very practical things. I think if we were to observe the lives of Jesus and the apostles in their evangelism, in their discourse, we would see very humble people. 
we would see them putting up with a lot of stuff, a lot of inconvenience in order, think about Jesus, in order to have access and to come into a home where there were tax collectors and sinners. He didn't have to sin to be, enter into there, but he had to, he had to become like them in the sense of laying aside some of his rights to enter. So, words for us all to consider. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, again for this practical passage, and I pray that its truth might, might challenge us. Lord, throughout the whole chapter, the gospel is the dominant theme. We thank you, Lord, for the, the, the gospel that Christ died for our sins. And we didn't deserve that. And he rose again, conquering death, conquering sin, and now sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for those whom he has purchased with his blood, who have trusted in him, who believe in him, and him alone for their salvation. And I pray, Lord, that we would never be smug about our standing with you or of these gifts that we have received, but that we would, like the Apostle Paul, be ready and eager to give freely what came so freely to us. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.